Welcome to the Get Over Yourself podcast. This is author and athlete Brad Kearns discovering ways to be healthy, fit, and happy in hectic, high-stress modern life. So let's slow down and take a deep breath, take a cold plunge, and expertly balance that competitive intensity with an appreciation of the journey. That's the theme of the show. Here we go. The Get Over Yourself podcast is brought to you by Almost Heaven, beautiful compact home use sauna kits, ancestral supplements, grass-fed organ meats in a capsule, DNA Fit, genetic testing for custom diet and exercise recommendations, Integro Health, high-potency liquid probiotic called Flourish, Organifi, organic powdered superfoods, delicious green, gold, and red powders, Wild Idea Buffalo, sustainable, grass-fed, beyond organic, real ketones, clean burning ketones for athletic performance and fat loss. And check out the bradkearns.com slash shop page. That's my personal selection of favorite products for health, fitness, and peak performance. And here we go with the show. When somebody sees that the guy in the next cubicle who's doing the same day job on a daily basis dropped 20 pounds, looks younger, and now all of a sudden signed up for a half marathon while I'm sitting here, that's way more motivating than me as a doctor telling this person you got to drop 20 pounds. Or, of course, if family members or spouse or anybody else is telling you, it's in one ear and out the other. But getting that peer support, if you can drive your peers as health champions, that's one of the most powerful things you can do. So before my... You know, referring doctors would get nervous because they'd see, wait, you just took this patient and based on their diet and lifestyle, you took them from an LDL of 90 to 130. So what are you doing? You know, what, what did you do wrong? But then I'd have to sort of explain to them that that's sort of expected if you're going to shift them into a, a more healthy LDL pattern. What are our goals here, right? Is it really to develop a six pack or is it really to make some small changes so you feel more energetic so you six feel better pack. about yourself? Right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. sorry. Yeah. Uh, right. Wrong answer. Oh, okay. Yeah, both. I want to enthusiastically recommend DNA Fit, cutting edge genetic testing to deliver a personal profile that will guide your fitness and nutrition goals. So simple, you spit in a tube, mail it off, and soon you get by email the super cool infographic where it delivers all these important insights and elements of your genetic profile at a glance. How you metabolize carbs, caffeine, vitamin D, lactose, and much more. My exercise profile was mind-blowing because it revealed my genetic muscular makeup to be 54% power strength and only 46% endurance. As a lifelong endurance athlete, I've been banging my head against the wall, training in a manner that was in conflict with my genes. Don't wait 20 years making mistakes like I did. Find out what diet and exercise patterns are most aligned with your genetics at dnafit.com. This stuff used to be super expensive. It was a few hundred dollars. Now it's pennies. Not really, but it's a great deal and you get 30% off if you just put in the code. G-O-Y-30. Check out everything at dnafit.com. Hi, listeners. What a treat you're in for. An opportunity to engage with one of the most progressive and forward-thinking physicians on the planet, Dr. Ron Sinha. We go back a long time. We published his book, The South Asian Health Solution, which is targeting the uh, South Asian population, but wonderful 
overview of the ancestral health approach for reversing your disease risk factors through diet and lifestyle modification. I love Dr. Ron's comprehensive approach where, of course, he hits the dietary talking points of the primal paleo, low-carb, ancestral health approach, but he also brings in these important concepts of mindset. So this show is going to be fast-moving, wide-ranging, very thought-provoking. You're going to get a lot of practical insights about how to improve your disease risk factors, your dietary habits, and especially your mindset. Oh my gosh, it's a wild ride. We talk about the dangers and the health consequences of rumination and over-pressurized helicopter parenting experiences. We get into a little bit of science with the disease risk factors, so you're definitely going to want to hit that 30-second back button, take some notes, and listen to Dr. Ron and I go deep. This guy has a very cool job down there in Silicon Valley working for the Palo Alto Medical Foundation where he runs their corporate health division. So he provides or oversees these on-site health and wellness services for huge Silicon Valley employers, the big companies you may have heard of, Google, Oracle, Cisco, Facebook, exciting fun. So he gives lectures and webinars. He gets to see initial intake patient appointments that last for an hour where he can really get deep into their lifestyle parameters. He's identified some very disturbing trends in the most affluent population in the country, these Silicon Valley workers that make a good income and live a good life, but they're constantly ruminating and experiencing anxiety and depression accordingly. So we get into the nuts and bolts of healthy eating, but also integrating all those other factors for what it means to live a healthy life. I think you're really going to love the show. Yeah, push the 30 second back button if you need to take some notes. And I think you're going to get a lot of great practical tips and insights from Dr. Ron. He's been fighting a fantastic battle against mainstream medical establishment and dated views about dietary and drug use, statin use to try to address the heart disease problem. And he demonstrated great success using dietary modification alone and getting people away from the destructive impact of statins or the lack of impact of statins and then convincingly addressing these issues with other doctors to help them expand their mindsets and their perspective and progress toward healthy eating and healthy dietary recommendations in the medical community. Great stuff. Now, finally, things are coming around and the tide is turning where people are embracing these crazy ideas that 10 years ago were rejected out of hand. Dr. Sinha riding a wonderful wave, doing a wonderful service for the community down there in Silicon Valley. And now we get to hear from him directly. So enjoy the show, Dr. Ron. Okay, the button's on. Okay. Ron Sinha, we're here. Thank you so much for hanging out. It's awesome reconnecting with you after many years. Right. Yeah. We, um, we, I first saw you down the street when I did a little uh, a, a seminar for people interested in primal living. Totally. And then I think I flashed a quick slide about, don't use statins. Those are stupid. They don't. And then like this, this hand came up from the audience. Well, technically speaking. And then you just went off. I'm like, dude, what are you all about? And then here is this guy. You're like the... Um, the progressive doc, like fighting the battle in, in mainstream medicine. I love it. And we've followed your work for a long time. Yeah. Wrote a beautiful book for Primal Blueprint Publishing. Yeah. The South Asian Health Solution. So I guess we could start. We have many things to discuss. Sure. Some of them not too pretty. Right. I mean, we're here in the, in the Silicon Valley. 
Yes. Um, is it is it the number one most affluent area in the in the country in terms of like whatever medium home price and all that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, but we yeah. have major issues here. Yep. So what's what's going on, man, with with the affluence and the access to fantastic healthcare and and great food? You're right. Uh, we're destroying our health in many ways. And that's really the big paradox that we're seeing here is um, in my role right now, I still have a consult practice where I see patients, but my primary role really is to go out to these high tech companies and try to come up with strategies to really help their employees become healthier. And it's in, in amazing over the last decade that the number of benefits and services that I'm seeing evolving in these companies. And honestly, Brad, in, in a lot of cases, it's really to just stay competitive because right now everybody's trying to recruit the highest quality engineers. So let's throw this benefit at them. Let's throw that benefit at them. Yet when we look over a lot of their information from a population health standpoint, we still find that depression, anxiety, diabetes, undiagnosed cancers, a lot of chronic health conditions are still at the top of the list. So despite showering them with all these benefits, like you said, world-class healthcare, on-site healthcare, on-site dentists, everything, um, we have employees that are still suffering with a lot of mental and physical health maladies. So, so the answer isn't just to give them more benefits and better access. It's to really dig deeper into what are the root causes of, you know, you're living in this incredible area, you know, beautiful climate. Um, you can do anything here, but um, why are people still suffering? So that kind of got me going on my journey because really... I wasn't, you know, taught to be a counselor, a mental health specialist in medical school. We didn't realize the role of stress with chronic disease. You, you were absent that day when they covered I that I think stuff. I called in sick that day or something, but, but it's really at the root of everything we see here in the clinic at every level. So, uh, Well, also the physical uh, issues, I, I think, are not, not just here, but all over the place with the hardworking, tech, uh, yeah. overstimulated, hyper-connected population. Yeah. And so... How do those present when you when you come see a patient? What's what's going on with the average Joe American person? Yeah, good point. And you're right. This whole tech addiction, it's not a Silicon Valley phenomenon. It's worldwide. We just made the stuff yeah. here and yeah, we exported made it. it out. <laughs> exactly yeah. right. But um, I think a lot of it starts with the fact that, number one, health often is not a priority. You know, the priority for a lot of people is you're surrounded by people at your company that are doing so well. And often you're, you'll hear about the one guy that maybe broke out of your company and they started their own you know, company and now they've made this much money. So there's always this comparison effect that's always happening. Even when I get invited to social occasions, the topical conversations are basically, hey, wh- what happened with that one guy with the startup? Hey, did you hear about this investment? Conversations are fixated on, you know, financial productivity, who's really succeeding the most. And it gets really infused in your DNA. So on the one hand, it's very exciting because you think the world is at your hand and you can do all these amazing things. And that's the positive of it. But the negative is when you're surrounded by people that are such high achievers, you feel inadequate, you know, all the time. And your bar for success just keeps going up. So maybe you broke out of that company. Now you're hanging with C-levels, but now you hear about the C-levels that are actually achieving even more. So you just keep rising and rising and rising and feeling dissatisfied. So I think this happens in any environment worldwide. But here, I think the bar is just so high that there's just no end to it. So, Also, the work uh, pace is frenetic, Yeah, maybe more so than um, sure. somewhere in a less less technological economy. Yeah. And so what happens when someone's overworking like to their to their to their physical health when you go in and take their blood what's going on? So the types of things that we're seeing is, you know, we um, in our books really focused a lot on insulin resistance and diabetes. And this is something I was trained about in medical school. But typically when we talk about case studies of people developing diabetes or kidney issues, our case studies would involve 60, 70 plus year old people, you know. And here when I came to Silicon Valley, that's sort of what I was expecting. But then all of a sudden I'm seeing 
heart attacks in people in their 30s, you know, early 30s, you know, diabetes type 2 presenting teenage years to early 20s. So everything I was taught about in medical training is present presenting decades earlier. And that was a shock to me. In the beginning, I thought maybe these are anomalies. But then what we realized is exactly what you said, that fast pace of life, the sedentary living, the high stress, it's accelerating aging. And we talked about that a lot in prior posts is accelerating aging through a fast lifestyle. We see that based on blood markers. And we also see that based on culture. So a lot of the focus of my work is certain ethnic groups react much more strongly to these sorts of effects than others. So people that are immigrating from Asia and India that come from a community where there was more group living, maybe stress levels were lower because of the way they lived. When you introduce them into the Western style of living, eating and, you know, lifestyle, things are just out of hand. They can become diabetic really quickly. So, yeah. Why do you say group living? What's that benefit or how does that factor in? Well, you know, we talk about the village, you know, so basically if you're coming from anywhere in the world where you're surrounded by neighbors, by direct family members, extended family members that live around you and support you, you know, that sort of group dynamic, the face-to-face social interactions that you're not deliberately trying to seek out, they're around you all the time. Um, That was just a part of daily living. And then all of a sudden you take someone from that environment and you put them in like a two-bedroom studio right next to a high-tech company where they've got no other connections, um, that has an adverse effect emotionally and even on your immune system as well, too. So so often I've seen patients where they were followed and they might have some baseline tests that they brought from India or China, and I can get some baseline info. And it's amazing. We think about the freshman 15 when you go to college. I talk about the freshman 15 when you first immigrate to this country. You look at the blood parameters and how the glucose goes up, or if I've got baseline inflammatory markers, how those end up getting adversely affected. So, so it's sort of a, a symbol of you know going from that group environment to this individual sort of me, me, me sort of society, what really that can do to your emotional and metabolic health. So are there other genetic predispositions? Because it seemed like the message in your book, uh, shout out to your peeps, the South Asian <laughs> hustlers, you said you guys are kind of screwed, so you better pay attention <laughs> and listen up, because they respond even worse than, let's say, a, a control subject to a high-carbohydrate diet, for example. Good point. You know, the, the thing is, with Asian Indians, East Asians, Filipinos, certain ethnic groups, what happens is that carbohydrate threshold is actually much lower. The switch for them turning into a metabolic syndrome, insulin-resistant person is much lower. So often, you know, if it might take 300 grams of carbohydrate for you to become diabetic, it might take only 150 to 200 grams in one of my patients. And it's it's interesting because as I take their baseline carbohydrate information, we realize that, my gosh, it's amazing, like, how low that barrier is. And the other thing is when you look at these individuals, they don't look like your typical diabetics. Mm. You would think that they'd be 20, 30 pounds overweight, but often their body mass index is 21 or 22, which would be considered underweight. But a lot of that fat is being socked away into the liver. It's stored as triglycerides in the bloodstream. So it's that invisible fat. And we all probably know about, you know, skinny fat and these types of things, but it's an epidemic in this population because they're slender. And then culturally, their family members think they need to be fed even more. So the spouses are overfeeding with more carbs. And if they don't have any consciousness around that, the problem just gets out of hand. So you have a, a strong genetic predisposition to how much and where you store fat. For example, right. we can all nod our heads and think about um, the the uh, the generations of of pot bellies and sure. the males on my side or the thick right. calves that I, I hate looking at them. And my mother has them, and so does my grandmother. <laughs> so we have that genetic predisposition. Yeah. But then we also have uh, the the lucky folks who don't have that predisposition yeah. to to pack on a bunch of fat. Yeah. But in a way. Um, there, that, that's, that's a problem you're saying. 
Exactly. I mean, the, the problem is they're packing on the fat in the wrong area. And the, on the, like, uh, around the organs? Around yeah. the organs, What's it called? right? Visceral yeah, fat? The visceral fat, exactly. And if you look at ethnic groups, if you looked at the fat distribution of, let's say, an Asian versus a Caucasian and an African-American, the distribution is very different. So for um, Caucasians, you'll see moderate amounts of subcutaneous and visceral fat. For African-Americans, they have a much larger proportion of subcutaneous and smaller versions of visceral fat, actually. So a lot of their heart disease comes from hypertension and less from insulin resistance. Mm. But when you look at the Asian distribution, that visceral fat is really large, and there's just a thin rim of subcutaneous fat, which is why they're really much more slender. So, so that predisposition really makes them a, a setup for developing heart disease in these conditions at a lower body weight and at a lower age as well, too. So we're probably gaining these insights only in recent times. It's recent times because now we finally have access to more diverse literature. As, as, as you probably know, a lot of our standard guidelines are based on studies done in Framingham, Massachusetts, so 1950s white people, um, or studies done more domestically. And then what we do is we create guidelines and we sort of apply that to a diverse population. But now that we're really looking at more global literature, um, when you start looking at those research studies, you start to realize, wow, there's really differences in the way that we should set weight guidelines, you know, heart risk guidelines, you know, age of onset of disease. So, you know, it'd be wonderful if we could have a one-stop solution for everyone. But unless you understand their ethnic background and metabolics, you know, you, you could be giving the wrong type of advice. For example, the low-fat diet for somebody who is much more predisposed to being insulin resistant, that could just be, you know, very devastating to their metabolism. Yeah. Well, I'd say there's probably some common ground where you can tell every patient to quit drinking Slurpees and you'll be, you'll be <laughs> right. safe. Yeah. Uh, but then when we start to look at the particulars, yeah. um, what about the, um, is this coming from the last hundred generations of South Asian heritage and the last hundred, I, I just did my ancestry DNA. I'm 46% yeah. Irish and 44% uh, uh, British Western Europe. So I'm like, uh, you know, I'm a purebred, which I may or may not be good, uh, but now we can track and see, you know, yeah. going pretty far back. Yeah. So where's that influence that's making me uh, skinny fat or predisposed to, yep. to this or that? Is that 10 generations, 100? Um, no, the interesting thing is when you look at the data, it looks like it's more like three generations, probably three to four. Ouch, and, man. And really, Grandpa, we, why didn't you have more fruit in your diet? <laughs> that's it? That's, that's, that's no, interesting. It's really, yeah, I mean, if, if you look at a lot of the sort of, even when I go back to India and you look at a lot of our families, you might see that parents and grandparents, you know, they're okay. Um, but basically, you know, I think the major problem has been that with the diet, even though their carbohydrate diet was a little bit heavier, it was still natural. It was still things like the wheat was made naturally. It was still homemade. A lot of processed chemicals didn't really enter into the diet. Um, their lifestyles were more physically active as well, too. So they were walking more. They're doing a lot of more natural physical activity. And that counteracted a lot of their insulin-resistant tendencies. They weren't necessarily, if you looked at my grandparents, for example, that lived to be 90 plus, they weren't sporting six-packs, right? So they still carried a healthy amount of subcutaneous fat. Um, but it still wasn't enough of the visceral fat to really trigger high triglycerides and metabolic syndrome. So, so, so that's the interesting thing is with a lot of our patients, I ask them, can you remember your last healthy relative? And usually it is kind of like a grandparent, you know? Sometimes it goes back to parents if they weren't sort of exposed to Western foods. And it's unbelievable. And I take care of multi-generational patients. I'll look at their lipids and things. It's dramatically different from the current generation. So you can see within just two generations, just major, major transformations in metabolic health. So I suppose that's the lifestyle choices and 
turning the turning the corner and taking taking some detours from absolutely the great things that your grandparents did. I, right. I can totally see that. Yeah, yeah. Even right now, my, I'm really concerned because. Um, you know, think about my, the, the career that our fathers had, let's yeah. say, and my father was a, a, a physician as well. He was yeah. a surgeon. He had a long career as a surgeon yeah. and he worked really hard and he got called in the middle of the night and went to call. Just like but my dad. Yeah. He was exactly. not banging his tech. He wasn't sending 2000 text messages a month totally. and having that extra layer of just, um, you know, nonstop uh, you nailed it. Nonstop connectivity. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 you, you bring that up. My father was a pulmonary and critical care doctor as well, too. But you're absolutely right that even though he worked god awful long hours, when he was done, he was done. And right now, if you look at the status of physicians, um, they're facing unbelievable rates of burnout. Like if you look at most national polls, about 45 to 50 percent of doctors are completely burned out and they're ready to leave oh. medicine. Oh. It's huge. Right. And you wonder, I mean, this is what's going to really break our healthcare system if you don't figure out a way to make the practice of medicine more meaningful. But when you look at polls of what is the number one factor that's leading to physician burnout, it's the electronic health record by far uh, over and over. Katie, are you listening? My sister, <laughs> she works very hard yeah. in the clinic overseeing the residency program in the Central yeah. Valley, gets yeah. home after a 12-hour day, walks and, the dogs, of course, yeah. walks the dogs. And then she's on the computer and it's exactly. like, what the heck is going yeah. on here? These, yeah. these poor doctors, they're, they're obligated to stay up with the records, yeah. I guess. With every, we did a study here and showed for every one hour of patient-facing time, you generate about 1.5 to two hours of electronic health record time. That's just not sustainable. But it, exactly, it comes back to the fact that technology has ruined the, you know, the, 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 uh, the practice of medicine in so many ways and really preventing people from wanting to go into this you know, profession. I mean, I remember it was cool for the patient when I was going through my, my surgeries. <laughs> yeah. I had uh, append, appendix and um, complications yeah. after and interacting with the urologist about the sure. blood in my urine for 90 days. But yeah. it was like you could email, you get the answer back. Yeah. It was much easier than waiting on hold oh, yeah. the, with the doctor's office music. Yeah. But this this hidden consequence it doesn't make sense because um, it seems like you could have a sidekick doing all that for you. Exactly. Just like a, an yeah. admin in a corporate setting. Yeah, and you're right. You're looking at sort of the new generation of medicine. And actually, the messaging part of it isn't really what drains us to most. There's a lot of compliance requirements, charting requirements. So when you look at our in-basket, there's all these categories of other work that you have to do that's not <laughs> patient-related. And you're right. That's exactly what we're dealing with is how do you create more meaningful teams? Like you should be able to have a non-doc, uh, you know, addressing these administrative issues. And now we're looking at AI type technologies to really do more automated sort of chats and chatbots that make it maybe can respond to this. So it has to go in that direction because otherwise the system's falling apart. So yeah. please Google WebMD for all further questions <laughs> about your strange right. illness. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Dang, that's disturbing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you're in this unique role where you can go into the um, corporate setting, yeah. uh, representing a lot of employees. So the the employee, the, there's a healthcare plan for thousands or whatever of employees. Yep. And you're you're representing the provider and trying to trying to get people more healthy before they before they go into the yeah. hospital or what yeah. have you. I want to tell you about WildHealth.com. They're an online provider of comprehensive precision medicine and health consultation services. They offer DNA analysis, custom lab panels, extensive medical intake form with family history and lifestyle preferences, and regular online visits with a board-certified precision medicine physician and a health coach whom you can message anytime through their convenient app. 
Wild Health evaluates your data to determine what you need for nutrition, exercise, sleep, and supplements, and you can experiment, consult, and retest to get everything dialed in. You'll get a cutting-edge epigenetic test of DNA methylation to calculate your all-important biological age and have fun lowering your age over time instead of following the mainstream path to accelerated aging. It's time to strive for awesome instead of just normal. Did you realize that only 6.8% of Americans are deemed metabolically healthy and only 2% are declared optimal? That's disgraceful, but you can turn things around quickly. Please visit wildhealth.com and you will see that this is the absolute gold standard of personalized medicine and it's available to you right now. Telemedicine available anywhere in the USA. Wild Health is generously extending BRAD podcast listeners 20% off the cost of membership. Just visit wildhealth.com slash Brad or use the code BRAD20 at checkout to get 20% off and start taking control of your health today at wildhealth.com slash Brad. Greetings, my fitness-minded listeners. I want to acquaint you with the Primal Fitness Expert Certification Program, the most comprehensive home study multimedia fitness education course in the world. If you want to enhance your personal knowledge of all aspects of leading a healthy, active, fit lifestyle, this total immersion course will be life-changing. I'm the lead instructor and author of the course, and we have 14 chapters of extensive written content with over 100 accompanying videos covering topics such as general everyday movement, including micro-workouts and dynamic workstation tips, the full experience of gym-based strength training and all the different modalities, a complete presentation on all aspects of sprinting, both running and low-impact options, an assortment of high-intensity interval training and high-intensity repeat training strategies, a detailed education on the principles and practical application of aerobic endurance training, and extensive commentary, the most you will find in any publication, on all aspects and symptoms of overtraining and burnout. We even have fascinating peripheral topics like integrating nasal diaphragmatic breathing, dynamic stretching, injury prevention, and developing a peak performance mindset. It's really something, this course. We went all out for over two years with a great team to develop this this amazing home-based fitness education for you. And you get one-on-one expert email support and private Facebook group connection throughout your studies to ensure that you absorb everything optimally and you pass your series of exams and get certified. So go to primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad to enjoy a very special limited time. And I'm not kidding. This is a big time discount just for you. 25% off your tuition. A fantastic premium offer at primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad for the most comprehensive fitness course you can ever find. So, you know, I think the biggest challenge right now is just getting employees engaged about their health. I mean, they've got all these benefits surrounding them, but, you know, even the concept of getting in a physical exam with a doctor, especially from people that have come from different countries where physical exams don't exist, just getting them out of their chair and into a clinical environment to really get some sort of care done is really, really challenging. So, and I think with newer generations too, just the whole concept of preventive health has really been fading quite a bit. 
So you've got to find other innovative ways to really engage these employees. And so often it might be a lecture or a talk. And even the talk topics have to be different. So if you go out to a company and just give a talk on heart health, nobody's going to show up. But if it's about the ketogenic diet, by the way, you know, or if it's about optimizing body fat or addressing fatigue, if it's about sexual health, you know, things that are a little bit more sexy and racy, then you get people through the door. And the nice thing is then you can, in the context of that discussion, you can engage them about healthy living, about nutrition, diet, and get them engaged into the system. So you've got to be very creative nowadays about how you can get busy employees engaged around their health. That's scary, man. It I mean, they're, they're they're working their butts off making money if they can go buy the Tesla, but you'd also think that health would want to come along for the ride. And yeah. I guess, are we looking at only a small sliver of the population that's cranking it at Whole Foods and entering the adventure race? Is that what you observe in these large companies? It's just, it, it, so I would say that the sliver of people that are becoming disengaged about their health is, is growing rapidly, is what, what I'd say. And just because the work pressures around them are growing rapidly as well, too, their environment's becoming much more technologically dependent. And, and so, so I think the good news is they're, depending on the company, some companies are starting to realize that offering a benefit is not enough unless you've sort of infused a culture of wellness into the managers, into every part of it. The C-levels often in companies will be very disconnected with what HR is doing. So the HR is kind of down in the basement trying to design the wellness programs, and the C-levels just care about the bottom line. And that's unfortunately how a lot of companies run. But if you don't connect the c so the companies where I have the most success is where the C-levels care about the health of the employees. And often they will promote some of the events that we're doing or the health education lectures and things like that. And, and if they show that they really do care about their employees in these sorts of ways, that has an unbelievable impact on getting employees engaged. So, so if you're out there ready to start a company, just know that you're not just in charge of profits, but you sort of become the health and wellness champion for those employees. And it's, it's not just health. I mean, it does affect your bottom line. When employees are healthier, they'll produce more, they're happier, they, they do a lot better. So, so that's a message we're really trying to get out to the companies where they're really you know, facing a lot of challenges with their employees getting healthy. Shout out to Ryan and Hannah at SVM here in Silicon Valley. They care deeply about the employees' health. Martin yeah. Bronze, my former boss at Interwoven, when I yeah. ran this unique employee wellness program, and it was infectious. It caught like wildflower. Everyone considered it a healthy workplace. So yeah. just the vibe and the support from the leadership totally. makes such a huge difference. Agreed. Yeah. Um, but you, generally, instead, what I see is you get a discount on your gym membership if you work here. And isn't totally that great? Right. And it's just real, it's, it's, it's lip service because maybe on the, on the website, it'll say, you know, we care about a healthy, balanced workplace and we do this and that yeah. for our employees. And yeah. um, I mean, a lot of these companies, you're right, they, they throw incentives at you, like you'll get a $150 Amazon gift card if you fill out this health risk assessment form. But here, people don't have any, you know, they have an abundance of money sitting in the bank. So, you know, financial incentives are just <laughs> not <laughs> enough. <laughs> so you've got to basically motivate them with maybe competition in some cases or positive peer support or having the right people come out there to give some sort of presentation, some sort of event that's really going to engage the employees. And people, it's interesting. Um, what makes them successful here is they're intrinsically competitive, right? So, oh. but if you can take that competition to like um, and put in a different context around sort of health. So when companies are doing challenges, you know, that are around getting more physical activity steps or around perhaps weight. I'm not always a big fan of using weight as sort of the center point of that, but sometimes it is a big motivator in a lot of companies to get employees moving in the right direction. And then they notice that, hey, by the way, I do happen to feel more energetic. My mood's better, even though I didn't lose 30 pounds, but that sort of gets them engaged in different ways. So you've got to find different incentives outside of just offering, you know, 
coupons and discount cards to Jamba Juice. Yeah. So you like injecting that uh, level of competition, especially to a high performing, uh, you know, yeah. information workplace. Yeah, absolutely. That's worked. So, so that works. And the other thing is, even without being that direct, is when you take an employee and they've lost a lot of weight and you kind of make them a health champion. So we, we, we did one of these programs several years ago at a local high tech company. And we basically ran it with a pilot of about 30 employees and they all did really well. And certain, you know, a certain number of them, they were just natural health champions, just very, you know, well-spoken. They were able to really motivate their peers. And we decided that why don't we take these folks and sort of use them with the other employees in the company? Because when somebody sees that the guy in the next cubicle who's doing the same day job on a daily basis dropped 20 pounds, looks younger, and now all of a sudden signed up for a half marathon while I'm sitting here, that's way more motivating than me as a doctor telling this person you got to drop 20 pounds. Or, of course, if family members or spouse or anybody else is telling you, it's in one ear and out the other. But getting that peer support, if you can drive your peers as health champions, that's one of the most powerful things you can do. So maybe we should hire at the big tech companies, like every one or one out of every hundred employees could be some fitness freak that doesn't really do anything. They just sit there in their cube and look like they're a project manager. That, see, I that love that innovation. Awesome. That would be yeah. awesome. This is a director of finance who actually doesn't know anything about money, but it's got yeah. a six pack, right? Yeah. So hey, I'm going like to go out for work. I'll, I'll miss the meeting, but give me the notes and uh, we'll catch up later on our, on our budget projections. Right. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So you're on to, I mean, I guess challenge number one is get interested in health, yeah. get some motivators and some competitive forces in the workplace so people will get off there. But this yeah. reminds me of uh, Mike Delandro, Primal Buddy, and he works for a company, satellite company in the East Coast, SES. Yeah. And he arranged, you know, th- he got the leadership to buy into a $500 cash reward if you could complete a hundred miles of walking in a year, something pretty, pretty easy if you okay. add it up. Yeah. And like, like 15% of the company did it in the rest of them. It was self-reported too. So huh, you, you could okay. have even lied, lied for 500 yeah. bucks or just fudged or whatever. <laughs> right. People wouldn't even budge for $500. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, That's that seems typical. like a nice carrot to yeah. support your walking and stuff. Yeah. I'm also thinking of Ariana Huffington and her passage from her book where she, she would uh, take a nap mm-hmm. in the workplace when she was starting and running Huffington Post. Uh, with glass windowed office, fancy right. corner office. Yeah. And she'd purposely leave the curtains open while she crashed out on the couch and had a do not disturb sign on the door. Sure. So don't come talk to me. Hey, you napping? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but she wanted it known that the leader it's was okay. napping and yep. it's okay. Yep. And yep. it seems like I'm asking you, are we there yet in the corporate workplace or is napping like this ridiculous um, pathetic disgrace of a person who can't stay awake during the afternoon conference meeting. I think there is more acceptance around it than there used to be, but not enough where most employees would feel comfortable opening up the windows and napping in public. And I'll be honest, even for me, those power naps are critical, but often I take take them in a car, you know, before I give a lecture or something like that. Do you so, tell a story or do you tell the truth? Like, I'm going to go down and uh, go to the ATM four blocks away. Yeah. So, you, so you just, just yeah. yeah, you're uncovering the issue that it's still a stigma. So I don't say that I'm going to my car to nap, right? So even though I, you know, come to the lecture with bed hair and stuff like that and people. And then we also have science coming out saying your yeah. cognitive function improves by yeah. a certain extent when you're refreshed and that these naps have a distinctive uh, a measured benefit. Yeah. It just hasn't caught on. It hasn't caught on. And, you know, there's so much great, I mean, for, you know, even the whole stress card, right? It took a while for people to acknowledge that stress is a true entity that interferes with cognitive function. And I think now, finally, you know, corporate leaders are starting to acknowledge that and realize that 
we can't just focus on the weight loss and the phys- physical aspect. But now it's because they don't recognize anybody at their current. Their That's house. right. Hey, what's your name? Hey, what's your name? Hey, what's your name? <laughs> Why are all these new people here? Because everyone else quit, man. Yes, exactly. Because you work them too hard. Right. Right. Exactly. So, so I think sleep still has a little bit of that stigma too, especially during work hours. But um, hopefully, we can evolve towards a better situation for that. You know. So you're in favor of napping, Doctor Ron Heck, says. Go ahead. Yes. And nap. Oh my God, naps are a godsend. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so number one is to get the population interested. Yeah. And do you have a number two? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna tee you up for one, mm. which is get the right information because we're still being fed bullshit lines about what's what's healthy and what's not? Yeah, I mean, I think sort of piggying back on the number one is, you know, especially out here when we talk about the high-tech digital world, um, they're very numbers and metrics focused, whether it's their work, their performance, it's like they're looking at percents. You know, we kind of joked about this when we were, um, did the book together about how, you know, your report card sort of stays with you for life. You know, am I getting straight A's in every part of my life? So if you can methodically identify numbers that are meaningful for people and then sort of attach some outcomes based on some uh, performance goals, that can be tremendously motivating. But you got to keep it as simple as possible. So, you know, often in our patients who are diabetic, if it's just one number like your fasting sugar, your triglyceride, your waist circumference, if you can just stick to one number and metric, and then you give them very simple things to do so they can hit it out of the park. So just like you said with that one example, let's set that mileage goal for the year really low so 90% of people can achieve that. Man, if you can get that win in place, then they want more. It's like, what's the next step? What do I need to do to get my triglycerides? I dropped it from 300 to 200. How do I get it to 150? So if you can identify, and for each person, that's going to be a little bit different. But if you can sort of find ways to identify that goal, that keeps them motivated. And then we can sort of go on to further further for, you know, goals that we can accomplish together. So what would you see as the most urgent thing? Not, not that we have a patient in front of us no, to, sure. to talk about, but generally speaking, what is the what is the what is the biggest uh, the triage issue with the average worker? So I would say um, my focus is really on metabolic health and insulin resistance. So I'm kind of laser focused on that. So number one, when I first see them when they walk in the office, you can tell by looking at a lot of these patients whether they're showing signs of insulin resistance even without drawing blood. So if they've got elevated waist circumference. And one of the things that we see in a lot of our Asian patients is they've got elevated waist circumference along with very slender limbs. So when I see that, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, visceral fat plus very low storage space for carbohydrates because of their body's anatomy. And that's kind of different than a lot of our Western obese folks where they might have a pot belly, but they've still got pretty large limbs. Their calves are pretty muscular. Their arms are muscular. So we know intuitively that they've got a little bit more storage space and glucose burning capacity. And we see that in the labs too. They don't tend to show the sky high triglycerides as often as you would see in somebody with just a little bit of a pot belly and less muscle reserve. So that's like the initial thing I look at. So already, even before I've done the lab, I'm like, this person looks and smells like they got some degree of insulin resistance. And then on top of that, you do the basic labs. And, you know, we can talk for hours about advanced high-level labs, but just starting with the metabolic panel where you look at their glucose tolerance, um, looking at their triglycerides, HDL through a standard lipid, um, maybe some inflammatory markers like the C-reactive protein. Just starting with those, we can already make some pretty good guesses in terms of what direction we need to go in. But Dr. Ron, you didn't say LDL. 
<laughs> right. Wait a second. What about my statins? To lower my LDL? Isn't that right. isn't that a guarantee of a ha- happy, healthy, long life? I know, right? So, so with the LDL and the hyper focus on LDL, we've obviously lost a lot of people just by you know using that focus. And in LDL, when you is say so tricky. lost a lot of people. <laughs> in, in a, I, uh, <laughs> I mean, th- this yeah. this line that, that yeah. you dispensed. I, I first heard it from you. Sure. That eighty percent of heart attack victims maybe get me if I'm wrong, but yeah, yeah. it was the UCLA meta study that all these right. heart attack victims had super low, widely considered to be healthy LDL, and they're still dropping. Yep. Yeah. They're still dropping of a heart attack. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. What's and that all about, man? So, you know, now that most of our heart disease globally is coming from insulin resistance, the type of lipid profiles we're seeing have evolved over time. The old days, yeah, perhaps it was more related to high LDL levels. But now in the face of insulin resistance, LDL levels tend to look normal or low. And a lot of that is pathognomonic for insulin resistance because you tend to develop these small LDL particles. And on a standard lipid profile, that's going to look low. So that's involved a lot of training for both patients and doctors. I often tell them that if we make the right changes in the average insulin resistant patient, often their LDL will actually go up because they're going from small particle to large particle. So before my you know, referring doctors would get nervous because they'd see, wait, you just took this patient and based on their diet and lifestyle, you took them from an LDL of 90 to 130. So what are you doing? You know, what, what did you do wrong? But then I'd have to sort of explain to them that that's sort of expected if you're going to shift them into a, a more healthy LDL pattern. So, so, so understanding the nuances of LDL is really important for patients and doctors and then focusing on those other metabolic syndrome criteria. Because remember, with metabolic syndrome, which is really the cornerstone of insulin resistance and heart disease and diabetes risk, LDL is not even on the list of criteria. So whenever doctors tell me about the importance of LDL, I remind them that it's actually not one of the metabolic syndrome criteria. Now, obviously, above a certain threshold, 160, 190 plus, et cetera, we've got to pay attention to the fact that they might be somewhat saturated fat sensitive. So do we need to modify diet? Because as you know, just from being one of the pioneers in the keto movement, some people go a little crazy and become hyper-focused on sat fat and might ignore other healthy sources of fat. And we can see that translate into major elevations in LDL. So we just have to be a little bit sensitive to that. The bacon and butter diet. Yay, it's awesome. (laughs) Right. So is that a concern of yours? If you see a person who's come in and cut their carbs and and cut their insulin production, but their saturated uh, fat intake is gone, uh, uh, abundant, and their LDL is going up to a certain threshold where even you are going to be concerned? So it is. It's it's not even more because of that LDL number. I still think as much as I'm a fan of saturated fat, it's a part of my diet. The one thing I would say based on studies is, although I don't think saturated fat is a major player in heart disease, it also is not necessarily been proven to be as heart protective as olive oil and things like that. So you still want to diversify your fats because we clearly have more studies on Mediterranean monounsaturated fats and things where you don't want to put all bets on sat fat. You want to mix it up between that, some natural omega-3 sources, et cetera. But when I do dietary intakes on a lot of my patients that have gone low carb, 80 to 90% of their money is basically on sat fat and there's very little other sources around that. So, Oh, yeah. That's just kind of by default, uh, lack of awareness, they, they end up just eating. It's the wrong type of awareness because I think, you know, just like any dietary movement, Brad, um, there's basically what, you know, the educated leaders of the movement are trying to transmit to the public. And then there's the media messages. And, you know, the Time magazine, Eat More Butter, you know, Coconut Oil, Keys. So a lot of the cornerstones of that are basically around sat fat. People aren't really elevating the importance of olive oil and things. Those are kind of like the 
old dated fats that we used to know about. So as, as, a, role, as a result of that media messaging, I'm finding that a lot of people, they're not really diversifying their fat intake. And the interesting thing is a lot of my hyper-LDL respond, uh, uh, hyper LDL responders, when they do add even a little bit more monounsaturated or omega-3s, we sometimes see that LDL drop down pretty dramatically. And that makes us, you know, that helps us both sleep better at night. So, yeah. How does that conversation go when you're explaining to the doctor that their uh, their intense focus on LDL, though narrow focus on LDL, is not the whole picture. It's gone better now than it did ten years ago. So, because I think we have a lot more evidence around that. And the other thing I also do is, even still, if I see patients that are hyper LDL responders, um, in many of my patients, I will get tests like coronary calcium scans. We'll get advanced lipids. So, so often I, I, I can come to these doctors armed with data showing, hey, look. These LDL particle numbers, they're not terrible. They've got type A LDL. There's no sign of coronary calcification. You know, the metabolic, you know, numbers are all reversed. You know, body weight's fine. So in the context of that, why in God's name would we put them on a statin medication? So, you know, I don't always order all those tests to prove my point to the specialist, but sometimes if you can provide that data, it sort of helps educate them. And I'd say now there's just a lot more great information around this sort of LDL, um, you know, paradox or, you know, you know, the miseducation around LDL. Now, you're saying this calmly with a smile, we're chilling here in the <laughs> yeah. conference room, but it's been 10 years of, I imagine, and yeah. I've talked to you over time, that it's, it's been really fighting a battle against the, uh, the, the fixed conventional wisdom that turns out that sure. it was based on flawed assumptions. Yes, it, it has. And the other thing, too, is because I am one of these doctors that will take patients off statins, <laughs> believe <laughs> ding, it or ding, not, ding, ding, I ding, know, ding, exactly, ding. yeah. Don't report that. We pause this podcast for a commercial from Dr. Ron. If you want to ditch your medications down the toilet, come see him and he'll feed you some delicious, nutritious vegetables, fruits, nuts and seeds. Yeah. Olive oil. Totally. But, but, you know, it's funny because, because I track these numbers so methodically and I can send flow sheets to my referring doctors. Often I'll show them that, Hey, guess what? This patient where I cut the statin, Despite the diet being exactly the same, the A1C in glucose has actually improved. And there's a lot of compelling data now around the fact that insulin resistance can get worse if you're on a statin for a long enough period of time. And that's just, you know, making worse the very problem that I'm trying to reverse. Uh, Brian, he's our audio engineer. There's your pull quote right there because that's some scary shit. Yeah. I mean, you're going to go take your statins. And most people, the people that I've talked to, they walk away with a smile, they got their pills and they feel like they're they're in the safe zone now because yeah. they're popping this stuff. It's, yeah. it's in the in the it psychology is. of the the modern human. Yeah, they even did a study that showed that individuals that are prescribed statins tend to gain a certain amount of weight after the first couple of months because they feel like they're bulletproof. I mean, you know, the drug within three to four weeks, you drop your LDL numbers so dramatically and they're like, hey, I, I can go to town now. I'm fully protected and bulletproof now. So we yeah. should do like a spoof commercial about that. You know, like, hey, want a hot fun Sunday? Sure, I've been on statins now for four weeks. I can indulge. <laughs> totally. Uh, I imagine you have resistance with patients over time who are scared to go off the statin. So it goes both ways. So, so I will say one thing that I definitely see patients that are super high risk. And quite frankly, they're not going to follow my dietary guidelines. I get a coronary calcium scan. They've got plaque. I'm not going to mess around. These patients, there's definitely a segment of the population that needs to be on statin medications. More people are fearful of statins, so it's more trying to oh, convince good. them that, you know, you know, the statins are useful in this particular scenario. 
The other, um, yeah, you're right. The other scenario does exist where people are like, are you sure I should get off the statins? And I'll never twist somebody's arm and force them to do something that's uncomfortable. But we do have to present to them the data about risks and really, is this truly indicated that indiv- in that individual situation? So, yeah. uh, But just to clarify that comment you just yeah. made and put a, put a Brad spin on it. Sure. You're recommending statins for the lazy asses that won't make lifestyle <laughs> modifications. That's the high, you're identifying a high risk population. Is that what you mean by high risk? That, yes. I mean, based on lazy ass. Maybe I could get a quote in the show too, Brian. (laughs) Is high risk really lazy ass? Is that our definition? Well, we do have some lazy asses that are genetically (laughs) gifted and their numbers look uh, incredibly well. I mean, they've got beautiful triglyceride to HDL profiles, no signs of insulin resistance, and and they're lucky. They don't have to go on the statin bandwagon. Are they eating a good diet or are they just lucky as heck? No, um, a a lot of them are eating a totally unhealthy diet, but they've been gifted with a metabolism where their metabolic numbers look great. And I see this in the clinic quite a bit. And I'm jealous because their numbers are better than mine. I mean, they've got an HDL of 80 plus, which is, you know, incredible, you know, based on what. So, So genes do play a role in some of these cases. And on the other hand, as you know, um, sometimes you'll see very elite athletes and people that are doing everything right and their metabolic numbers are through the roof, you know, so you can go sort of either way on those directions. You do see that? You see someone who's who's trying their hardest and going to Whole Foods every day or other expensive joints and cooking all the right stuff and then coming in and and looking lousy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do It's it's a small percent and, and that's where the LDL number can sometimes be really in discord with what their lifestyle is. And that just kind of tells us that um, LDL is just a very tough nut to crack, you know, based on lifestyle. You can make some lifestyle changes that can clearly have an impact on LDL. But in some cases, the genetics of LDL is just so strong. The way your liver processes cholesterol, it's very tough to do anything from a lifestyle perspective to make a dramatic move on it when genes are playing a strong role. And so what does that mean for them? Are they at high risk of heart disease or can they get their triglycerides down by limiting carbohydrate intake or something. Yeah, so that's a million dollar question. When you take somebody that, let's say, is athletic, everything that you look at in your checklist, they've met or exceeded in terms of, you know, health goals, but they have an isolated high LDL. What do you do? You know, so if you get the advanced cholesterol profile, you're checking inflammatory markers, you get a heart scan, there's no signs of plaque. What do you do with that person? So traditional medical Western medicine would say still they need a statin. You know, I would be leaning towards not doing a statin, but you do have to have the conversation about the fact that, yes, even with an isolated, elevated LDL, there is some presumptive risk, you know? So unfortunately, there's no studies or data to look at. Everybody in the lipid world, that's like the one question nobody can definitively answer. So if you talk to all the experts, you know, they'll probably be a little bit safe and say, put them on a statin, get that LDL down to 130, 100, whatever. Um, but a lot of us that are still a bit unsure and our gut check tells us that this doesn't, doesn't look and smell like someone that's going to have a heart attack in the next five to 10 years, we might sort of have a conversation and hold off on statins and sort of go from there. Can you put an individual through like the, uh, the stress EKG on the treadmill and get some other indicators besides their blood work that they're looking good in terms of cardiovascular health? So you can do all these things. So you're, you know, so first of all, if you put them on a stress test, what you're looking for is do they have a large enough plaque that's obstructing their arteries during exercise, in which case a lot of them would be having symptoms while they're exercising. If that stress test is normal, they might still have plaque. And that's where the coronary calcium scan can be useful because you can pick up on those small plaques, but you're still looking for calcified plaques, right? So there is still a cohort of patients that can develop non-calcified plaques that you may not see on a standard coronary calcium scan. But the, the, the good news is 
that the generations of images and scanners are getting much more high fidelity. So we're pretty much close to a stage now where we can readily have accessible tests with minimal radiation exposure, where you can see all types of plaques. So really, that that's going to be the, the real determinant in the near future is even if your LDL is 240, if you have a scan like this that can detect all forms of plaque, um, that's readily accessible. And we see that there's really no evidence of any impending plaque formation or rupture, then why would you put them on a drug like that? So... Uh, do you like the ratio of triglycerides to HDL as a really prominent indicator of your heart health? Oh, I love the triglyceride. It's just a really easily accessible number. It's not one that's reported on most lab tests, but that's just such a great, simple indicator of early insulin resistance. So even before your glucose goes up, often the triglyceride to ratio is a nice lead indicator of whether you're uh, moving in that direction. So yeah. And what are we shooting for? So less than three, but the lower the better. If we can go for one wonderful, but that doesn't always happen for everyone, but definitely dropping it down below three or even 2.5 to one would be great. So we've heard about triglycerides under 150 is kind of an important goal to stay out of the risk zone, the red zone. And then we want our HDL oftentimes we've heard over over Mm -hmm. 40 is like a, 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 a minimum objective. Yeah. And so now you can calculate listener, if we're talking about a a triglycerides of 150 and an HDL of 50, Yeah. what's your grade there for that person? Yeah, I mean, I think, so, so you're right. The, the ratio does make sense there. So I, th- I think that would be a good ratio. But I think if you just absolutely looked at the triglyceride, even despite having an elevated HDL, I, I would prefer the triglyceride to be closer to 100 or below. And these are typically the patients I just feel like based on their numbers and following them forward for many years, we see that their A1Cs, glucose, they're just the most protected against and resistant in the future. So all my goals with my patients is let's get that triglyceride to 100 or below. And, you know, if it floats up into the low 100s or 150 and their HDL is still fine, yeah, their additive risk is probably not that great, but I think 100 or below is ideal. And in most people, if you get the triglycerides below 100, usually you see a fairly substantial rise in the HDL over time. Oh, so yeah. they're it's somewhat like associated? Yeah, it's it's almost it's an inverse uh, it's an inverse association in most cases. You get that triglyceride low enough, the HDL goes up over time. So whenever people ask me how do you get the HDL up, what are the typical things you see on WebMD? Right, drink more red wine, exercise even harder, and these things have modest impact on HDL. But getting the triglycerides down, that's the number one indicator for getting the HDL up. Oh, yeah. What else has an impact on HDL? Well, then you think about the things that will bring the triglyceride down, right? So lowering the carbohydrate intake, um, you know, making sure obviously you're getting the right types of exercise, you know, you know, cutting the sugar out of the diet. Those are the things that are going to really help bring it down. Okay. So back to the, uh, the workplace and getting motivated and concerned about our health. Now I'm concerned the listeners interested, we're on to the next stage, which is what are the dietary and lifestyle changes that we can make out of the gate to make the most impact? Yeah. So I'll tell you, um, a lot of my thoughts have sort of evolved over time because in the beginning, you know, when when I started this movement, it was really fixated on let's get that carbohydrate number down as low as we can or, you know, you know, at least a reasonable threshold. And even though that's the epicenter of my approach, because I see so many insulin resistant folks that are consuming loads of carbohydrates. Now, you know, when I see stressed out people that are in the office that are dealing with the pressures of work, home, et cetera. The last thing you want to tell them is let's remove something from this diet that you enjoy, especially if you're an Asian who likes to eat rice. And I tell them we got to cut back on rice. So that goes okay with some people. With some other people, they're like, that's my comfort food. That's, that's my, my pack life, of, man. That's my pack of cigarettes. You're taking that away from me, right? I'm, I'm not smoking. I'm not drinking alcohol, but you're taking that away. So then, you know, so if someone's motivated to do that, that's a no brainer. That's easy enough to do is to remove those extra carbohydrates. But 
Now I'm really thinking about more of an additive impact on their diet. Like what are the foods that are going to energize you and keep you satiated and satisfied and happy in the context of your chaotic life? And, you know, and one of the things we see in a lot of our patients is they're just not eating enough protein. Like how do we get more diverse, healthy sources of protein into your diet? How do we add back some of the fats? Again, if you're of Indian origin, you know, things like ghee and coconut oil, which are a huge part of the paleo primal ketogenic movement, those were staple foods of Indian ancestry. And, you know, based on Western science, many people have thrown out the bottle of ghee and coconut oil because they're like, my God, that's going to contribute to my heart disease. But if I can tell them that, hey, guess what? We can add back some proteins, some of those satiating fats, and let's try to eat a little bit more vegetables. Let's not overcook the hell out of them and drip them in some curry sauce, but maybe we'll try to create them in a different way. All of a sudden, you're adding things to their diet to help nourish and energize them. And oh, by the way, they're more satiated, you know? So for example, with rice, now my technique with rice is rather than say to cut back on rice, I ask them, do you like biryani or fried rice? You know, so biryani is like Indian fried rice where you take a little bit of rice and you mix in nuts and seeds and spices and mixed vegetables. If you eat meat, you can add chicken or shrimp to it. It's like a Asian fried rice. And guess what? If you make it the right way, you can enjoy some of the rice, but you're getting all these nutrients around it as well. So that's been more of my sort of gentle approach to diet is how do you take these meals and make them more diverse and add nutrients without telling them, cut out the rice, eat more salads, eat more veggies and do that. So that is, that's pure genius, man. <laughs> I love that, <laughs> that good. because it's all positive. Right. Like, go yeah. ahead. I need you to eat more of these <laughs> right. it satiating is. foods. Yeah. Doctor's orders. Oh my gosh, you're <laughs> kidding. I love to eat those foods. And then by default, they're yeah. not going to be reaching for the carbohydrate yeah. snacks, which exactly. emanate from from all sorts of uh, perhaps bad ideas about cutting the fat out or yeah. eating th these low-fat options, uh, yeah. non-fat milk instead of full milk and things right. like that. And the beauty of that is when you do that, they've naturally reduced their carbohydrate load by maybe 30 to 40%. <laughs> they, they feel better. And now I can point to that number, that motivating number, the triglyceride or maybe the waist circumference. And they're like, holy crap. I mean, this has gone down just by doing that. What's next? And then maybe I can sort of look back and say, well, we could probably cut back on these carbs a little bit. And, and then they're in, they're all in because they feel amazing, right? So, so again, if you got a motivated person, they might be ready to go down to 30 grams of carbs. Great, let's run with it and do it in the best way possible. But, you know, I, I tell people my practice is different. I'm not taking care of elite athletes. I'm taking care of elite sitters and workers and stressaholics, <laughs> right? That's and, very and nicely them. said. <laughs> Right. What do you do over there at Google? I'm an elite cubicle performer. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, the, the other interesting thing is, you know, I do have some athletes in my practice and for them, their goal is their time, right? Or their body composition. But for a lot of my average patients, their goal is to be able to enjoy their traditional foods again. Their goal is to be able to eat rice again the way they'd like to, maybe not the way they'd like to, but at least a little bit more. And the, and the nice thing is, as you know, when you improve their metabolic health and you raise their um, insulin sensitivity, their carbohydrate tolerance goes up. So once they're getting more physically active, we've added some muscle onto those skinny stick legs, they, they can handle some more rice in their diet. And then we track the numbers and see that, guess what? You know, your numbers aren't as bad as they were, you know, a year ago when you had the skinny fat, you know, metabolism and all of that. So so their goal may not be to break a world record, but maybe to eat a little bit more rice. And that makes them happy. You know, that's those are the goals we're trying to achieve with these patients. It's so. just a simple, I'm just living a simple <laughs> life here. I do need to get my red Tesla when my stock options vest in 90 days, but I also want to eat more rice exactly. in life. Right. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, so when you say raise their insulin sensitivity, just yeah. so that we're, we're doing a oh, little sure. commercial for the layman here. Yeah. That's a good thing. That's a good thing, right? right? Insulin we resistance is bitty bad. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah.
Yep. So when when you say insulin sensitivity, uh, that means the individual is. I want to tell you about WildHealth.com. They're an online provider of comprehensive precision medicine and health consultation services. They offer DNA analysis, custom lab panels, extensive medical intake form with family history and lifestyle preferences, and regular online visits with a board-certified precision medicine physician and a health coach whom you can message anytime through their convenient app. Wild Health evaluates your data to determine what you need for nutrition, exercise, sleep, and supplements, and you can experiment, consult, and retest to get everything dialed in. You'll get a cutting-edge epigenetic test of DNA methylation to calculate your all-important biological age and have fun lowering your age over time instead of following the mainstream path to accelerated aging. It's time to strive for awesome instead of just normal. Did you realize that only 6.8% of Americans are deemed metabolically healthy and only 2% are declared optimal? That's disgraceful, but you can turn things around quickly. Please visit wildhealth.com and you will see that this is the absolute gold standard of personalized medicine and it's available to you right now. Telemedicine available anywhere in the USA. Wild Health is generously extending BRAD podcast listeners 20% off the cost of membership. Just visit wildhealth.com slash Brad or use the code BRAD20 at checkout to get 20% off and start taking control of your health today at wildhealth.com slash Brad. Greetings, my fitness-minded listeners. I want to acquaint you with the Primal Fitness Expert Certification Program, the most comprehensive home study multimedia fitness education course in the world. If you want to enhance your personal knowledge of all aspects of leading a healthy, active, fit lifestyle, this total immersion course will be life-changing. I'm the lead instructor and author of the course, and we have 14 chapters of extensive written content with over 100 accompanying videos covering topics such as general everyday movement, including micro-workouts and dynamic workstation tips, the full experience of gym-based strength training and all the different modalities, a complete presentation on all aspects of sprinting, both running and low-impact options, an assortment of high-intensity interval training and high-intensity repeat training strategies, a detailed education on the principles and practical application of aerobic endurance training, and extensive commentary, the most you will find in any publication, on all aspects and symptoms of overtraining and burnout. We even have fascinating peripheral topics like integrating nasal diaphragmatic breathing, dynamic stretching, injury prevention, and developing a peak performance mindset. It's really something, this course. We went all out for over two years with a great team to develop this amazing home-based fitness education for you. And you get one-on-one expert email support and private Facebook group connection throughout your studies to ensure that you absorb everything optimally and you pass your series of exams and get certified. So go to primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad to enjoy a very special limited time. And I'm not kidding. This is a big time discount just for you. 25% off your tuition. A fantastic premium offer at primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad for the most comprehensive fitness course you can ever find. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, we want their muscles to be able to take in more carbohydrates and use it as a fuel source. When they're insulin resistant, right, those muscles just don't want to take that rice and carbs in. They're going to send it towards liver to make triglycerides or store them as fatty liver. They're going to send them to body fat. So we want to reroute that traffic. So I think one of the things that we did through our book, which has been probably the most meaningful part of the book, was the image of the carbohydrate traffic diagram. So every single patient that comes into my office, I show that image like on a piece of paper and I tell them, here's the carbohydrate car. Right now, the car can't get into the muscle parking lot. So it's going here or here, you know, and it's interesting, Brad, because I see couples a lot, too. And it's, it's interesting to be able to show the couple and I'm sort of stereotyping, but I can tell them that, you know, for the woman, often the carbohydrate car is going more towards fat, but their lipids are OK. So it's not going as much towards the liver. In a lot of our males, it's not really going much towards fat because they're 30 pounds lighter than the wife, but a lot of it's going to the liver, which is why his triglycerides are... When you sort of explain it through that simplistic mechanism, it's really great because now the women realize that, hey, it is an unfair world, but now I understand why this diet's sort of working in this way for him and it's not working for them. But really simplifying those concepts. And once you've engaged and simplified the concept for them, they understand what food's doing to their body then it's an easy sell regarding what changes they need to make. But I think in the past, you know, we, we just tell them what to do, but we don't tell them why. And these are smart people. You can't just tell them cut out rice and you're going to do better. You have to tell them why. What is that rice or that flatbread or that tortilla? What is it really doing to your body? And this is how it works. So that education part, that's interesting. I mean, that might be the missing link for a lot of people. That it, they've just heard these yes. people spouting the information, but have never been sat down, you know, it might be too busy to read a, a detailed book on, yeah. on diet or confused because there's these warring voices that are slamming <laughs> each other. And so they choose yeah. out of any awareness level. But when you get educated, and know what's going on. I would tell you after doing years of lectures at all these companies, that is the number one, because, you know, I go out to companies like Google and they, they've got people way more famous than me giving talks and lectures on this stuff. But time and time again, it's my ability to sort of explain science in a very simple way. Like, what is this diet doing to your body? I lead with that. So 60, 70 percent of my talk is all around simplifying the science of what's happening in your body. And that's my sell, right? I'm now as a doctor, I realize I'm actually a salesperson. Every day I'm making a sale about lifestyle. So you engage them, you hit them on the front end with the science part of it and how that applies to their body. You tie some emotion into it, you know, so I showed pictures of, you know, grandparents, what their bodies look like, what their lifestyle was like. Don't you have an aunt or an uncle that look like this? This is what's happening. You tie some emotion to that education. And then basically you can introduce the lifestyle principles and it's much easier that way. And really, I think, um, when people come back to me and tell us feedback about the book, and I got to hand it to you and Mark, because you guys were so open about really making the book more about storytelling. You know, a lot of people tell me, I remember that case in chapter one. That's me, you know, or that woman in chapter three. Those stories had as much of an impact as my dietary advice of eating 150 carbs or whatever. You mm. know? So, so I think a lot of people listening on the show might be health champions, leaders, coaches, maybe some docs. I think we need to focus more of our energy on, on making the cell in an emotionally connecting way. And that's really my passion now. I mean, I can de definitely dig into more research and look up more articles. And, and I like doing that. That's a science part of my head. But there's another part of my brain that's more the right brain. How would I create images and stories and messages that will really motivate people so they can make the right changes? Wow, that's big. And I'm thinking back to some experiences I had with doctors, like when I got my a bone scan and identified that I had a stress fracture and so I couldn't run in college anymore. Oh. And the guy came into the room and said, oh, you got a, you got a stress fracture. See the hot spot right there. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't run. All right. See ya. You know, and then, <laughs> right. I mean, if, if he had gone and said, 
hey, why did you run so much that your 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 yeah. shin bone was in throbbing pain before you started that last run that really led to the, mm. the stress fracture? Yeah. And what's going on here? You know, that, that oh, would yeah. be like an, an ideal doctor exchange where the person's in this yeah. position to help yes. you modify your lifestyle habits. Exactly. So we need to build machines in Silicon Valley that can do that for us, right? So until that happens. Well, now the machines are, are doing the surgery. So you could just be like, I know, uh, right? You know, that's why you should have Dr. Ron podcast. I know people are, you, you think you're too busy, but you could just do that all day. No kidding. How yeah. Fun. Yeah. The, the book you're talking about is the South Asian Health Solution. Right. And if you're from South Asian heritage, you, you absolutely have to read it. It's mandatory. <laughs> um, and if you're not, unfortunately, you know, the titles might, might kind sure. of be a niche, niche audience, but yeah. it has so much great content in there for everyone to understand that car drawings and the graphics yeah. where the, 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 um, you know, the, the, the car goes full, they can't do anything. So then they have to go take a detour and put it into fat storage. Right. It, it's exactly. unforgettable. It, it really, you get, you exactly. get what's going on in your body. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think anybody can relate to it. Yeah, for sure. So you said um, that waist circumference yeah. is the indication that you're uh, developing some visceral fat, which is the one of great concern. Is this for males and females? It is. Yeah. Right. And so everything else we see about the different body types mm -hmm. and the, the the curvy gals versus the, the, the slender ones, yeah. all that stuff sort of independent of this um, this concern that you can identify about waist circumference ratio or something. Right. And you know, the, the, one of the challenges with the waist circumference ratios is it's not something that's easily measured. It's not really repeatably measured. And in healthcare systems, it's not something that's being done because you can just check a weight so much more quickly and calculate a body mass index. But just to keep things simple, I mean, for most people, like when they've made changes, one of the main questions I ask them is, are your pants getting looser? Like, you know, can we sort of um, be able to tell that there is some reductions in that visceral fat and see some health improvements from that? Um, it, but it's not always easy to tell just in the clinic because some of my patients, they visibly look like they don't have that extra belly fat. But that's when the metabolic numbers can really tell you that they're socking some fat away. And that can be the high triglycerides. Often we'll get liver function tests. So anybody that looks and smells like they've got insulin resistance, you want to check liver function tests like the AST, ALT, which are the liver inflammatory markers. And often you will start seeing some mild early elevations in those numbers. And sometimes we'll have to get an ultrasound to document fatty liver. But yeah, so, so the body size is an important tool, but I'd still say, Brad, it's sort of a blunt tool. You know, if we could do body scans, obviously more readily in the doctor's Check office. Check out that liver, see if it's coated exactly. in yellow. <laughs> yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. And that, that is, I mean, as much as we joke, I mean, this is a Star Trek medicine that we're going to see people walking into a room and they already get fully scanned. You know, we get to see their coronary arteries more clearly. We get snapshots of their liver. We got more sensitive blood tests that we're doing. And that's really going to be the future where we can more definitively tell you that, yeah, you're somebody that's got more of this harmful visceral fat, even though your numbers may not be aligned there, we can catch those things early. So that's my other message is how do you find these clues for these chronic health conditions as early as possible? So that's where you brought up the ratio. The ratio is a great way to, you know, look up um, basically diabetes risk. So instead of waiting for glucose, I call the high triglyceride to HDL ratio. That's pre-pre-diabetes. Why wait for pre-diabetes, right? Wait for it, you know, you know, catch it before the glucose even goes up. So... Oh, so then the next uh, stage in the disease process is you're seeing an elevated fasting glucose. Exactly. And yep. what, are, what are our concerns? What are your numbers that you're... Uh... Yeah, I mean, again, if you took a cutoff of a fasting glucose on a standard lab, we're looking at anything above 100, right? So, so ideally, we'd like to get that below 100, but in our patients that are doing really well, probably more in the 80s, you know, below 90 would probably be more ideal. One thing I'll tell you that after looking at a lot of fasting blood glucoses over the years is sometimes you can get somebody to do everything right. Their ratios are all good. Their A1Cs are good. 
but they just can't get that darn fasting sugar down to below 100. And I see that a ton in my practice. And what I would tell you is I wouldn't overreact to that. Like that's just one single data point. Like if you're in other numbers are great. Um, don't fixate on a 101 blood glucose because often that's just an exaggerated cortisol response that we see a lot because oh. a lot of our folks here out in Silicon Valley, again, not Silicon, anywhere worldwide, they're up late at night. They're looking at digital devices. They're going to bed in a very high cortisol state. And often the liver will respond by pulsing out a little bit of extra sugar. And I've seen that in my case, even when I'm in the best of health metabolically, um, when things are crazy, you know, work deadlines, corporate deadlines, whatever I do from a dietary standpoint, I cannot get my glucose below 100, no matter what I do. It's amazing. I go on vacation sometimes, eat more carbs, and sometimes I have my meter and my glucose is doing great in the morning. So... Ah, I'm so I'm so glad to hear that because <laughs> when I was doing my ketogenic experiment deep into yeah. extreme carb restriction and long fasting periods, yeah, I'd prick my finger sometimes and it'd be like 131, like WTF? <laughs> Welcome to Facebook. What the <laughs> heck is that? Out of no, and like and then I go, okay, well I haven't eaten anything in 18 hours, yeah, and before that I had an omelet, and yeah. before that I had a steak, right? So what's going on? So and I guess that, my I was making the glucose I needed. Possibly it was post workout or some it is. crazy thing where... I mean, it's hats yeah. off to our livers because our livers will do anything to protect us. So, so as much as you're doing great metabolically, your liver is still a, kind of like a protective grandmother that likes to feed you sugar every now and then. So <laughs> so sometimes it'll like float out a couple of grains of sugar that's going to show up, especially in the morning when cortisol levels are high. So I've learned now because I've had patients get so frustrated. I've been frustrated. I just sort of let that go now, oh. unless we're seeing trend lines that are really consistently high and we're seeing other factors. So in some of those patients, I might do a glucose tolerance test where they get fed that sugar drink and you measure their glucose and their insulin levels. And often that comes back perfectly fine. So if that, their A1C and other numbers are fine, I'm not going to overly fixate on that. But it is a great way, Brad, to get people to think about balance and evening routines, you know, so really making sure... Can we get off devices? Can we do some mindfulness type things, some gratitude practices? Because you're going to bed way too amped up. And sometimes that will translate into better sugar. Sometimes it doesn't, but it still gets people into the habit of being a little bit more mindful about what their nighttime routine is. Oh, fun. So we can track our morning glucose uh, with that other level in mind of how sure. well we were chill. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Um, and we also want to uh, cover... Some of the other fun stuff now that now yeah. that we've gotten through some medical science. Hopefully, <laughs> right. you're you're following along, listener. I mean, you, you did a fantastic job, at, you know, just getting it, it tied back into real life circumstances and eating, eating more of the uh, what is it, the biryani? Is that where you have all there the, we go. the nuts and, and the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just pile the meat on, <laughs> pile the yeah proteins. Speaking in there. of yeah. basketball, yes, I did that with my my son's uh, high school players because I know you got uh, kids coming into the the hoop scene big yeah. time. Um, and the guys would come over and I'd say, hey, guys, you want a smoothie and some popcorn? Those are my two go-to <laughs> things to feed, you know, a, a mass of uh, young basketball players. Ooh, I haven't thought about popcorn. That's a good Yeah, yeah but like I'd put in the smoothie like giant scoops of coconut oil. Ah. And so you'd, you'd get this chocolate smoothie that looked like a normal chocolate smoothie, but it had like a thousand calories in one, you know, one that cup. And awesome. then these guys would get full. So they just, you know, they have a little popcorn. They wouldn't go raiding the cupboards uh -huh. and eating all okay. this other crap sugar because they didn't realize it, but they just had this <laughs> massive caloric bomb yeah. In the smoothie. Uh, you hey, sent me that yeah. recipe. That was an amazing <laughs> yeah. recipe. I remember seeing that. Works yeah, for, yeah. <laughs> you know, section finalist, second round of the state tournament, man, Placer yeah. High, <laughs> drinking those coconut oil, secret coconut oil smoothies. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Um, so you have great articles on your blog. I get drawn in and it's, you know, makes you reflect way beyond the, the medicine, the blood test. So I thought Appreciate we'd get that. to some of that. Sure. Um, especially, you know, you're, you're coming from Silicon Valley and seeing maybe Oof. the whole thing on steroids, but I think yeah. everybody can relate to these concepts like ruminating. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the other area of focus has sort of le led to thinking about mental health is, you know, my wife being a pediatrician, we are seeing a lot of these chronic health conditions showing up in our kids. You know, when, you know, whenever I talk to my wife during, you know, during her medical training, she didn't learn to address insulin resistance in young kids and teenagers, you know, anxiety, depression, these types of things. She's, that we see out she's here. training in pediatrics, but yeah. she's not covering this stuff. Yeah, because these are supposed to be adult stuff. This is stuff that Ron uh -huh. should be training and not, you know, a pediatrician who should be seeing more childhood disorders. But but now we're really seeing a lot of these adult mental and metabolic health conditions presenting in young kids and teens. So it's been sort of a passionate thing for me because interestingly, like I told you, often we'll see spouses in the in the exam room. Now often I'll see the parents and they bring their teenager, their kid into the visit. And when you look at the whole family's metabolic profile, often you'll see a lot of similarities. And and we're starting to understand that, wow, I mean, a lot of these conditions, you know, it's really driven by common thought patterns, you know, a lot of motivation. So the same hard driving father or mother has a kid also that feels like they're not getting the grade. So they need to do more extracurricular activities. You know, they got to do more academic enrichment. So these behavioral patterns are leading to similar metabolic manifestations. But it's scary when you start seeing those signs in a nine-year-old, right, versus somebody that's 40 or 50. And that's an additional, it's not a... It's not a type of motivation I like to use, but often I have to pull that out. Um, if I've got the family in the room, I've got to tell them that these health behaviors are already manifesting in multiple generations. <laughs> yeah. Teenagers are going, yeah. see, dad, I told you, leave me alone just because I got a few C's. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh, you, my you can imagine the conversation there. So. We're, we're passing our, our, our junk on to our kids. Is we what are. Saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's OK for you to go be stressed at your your important job, but like sure. We're, we're bringing that into the, into the home. Yeah. But Brad, but Brad, when I was a kid, I don't know what you were eating, but in my high school, my high school was a block away from McDonald's. I probably went to McDonald's three to four days, you know, a week and I ate all kinds of garbage. My parents were both working. I was a latchkey child, but I also spent a lot of time riding my bike and playing outdoors and doing a lot of things. So And studying uh, medical texts in his spare time <laughs> before his parents yeah, got home. Right, exactly. But there was a lot of natural activity I was doing as a kid, which today's generations aren't doing. So they're accumulating a lot more of those junk foods into their diet, but they're just not playing and being outdoors. I, I tell people they're bathing in screen light instead of sunlight. So, <laughs> right. So, and now we're seeing really the manifestations of that in young kids and, and the parents aren't setting good role models as well either. They're on their devices just as much. So, so it's an opportunity to really think about the whole mental and physical health aspects and, you know, sort of track these numbers together as a family. But yeah, I, I think an eye opener for all of us should be that this is having a major impact on just the next generation below us, the fact that they're manifesting with these conditions at such an early age. Yeah, as a parent, I have a strict rule. When it's 10 o'clock, I text both my kids and say, get off your devices. Do they listen? How would you? <laughs> yeah, there joke. we go. Nice. Sending a text through a house, like you that. know, <laughs> into the closed door bedrooms. There we go. Uh, but it, it's um, it's a big concern of mine because we didn't have that. Just like you said, <laughs> at least you walked to the McDonald's, right? What was it? Three blocks. Yeah. Well, yeah, you got true. a great yeah. workout going to get your your fries and your right. uh, your harmful vegetable oils. But yeah. today the kids are driving to the McDonald's, or, right? Or DoorDash it directly home. Oh right, or something. my goodness! Oh, <laughs> so, I forgot yeah. about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So how's that work with the family conversations? 
How's that go over? It, it works well, but you know, when you have a family in the room, you've got to set some guidelines before the uh, conversation starts. Because typically what was happening in the past, especially with couples, is if I told the husband something, the wife would nod her head and say, see, I told you so, doctor. You know, and then that creates a different dynamic. So immediately I have to <laughs> say that no, the rules are we can't be judging each other. This is a positive conversation. We've got to be encouraging. And then I'll sort of go one by one through what each of the different family members can do. So you've got to sort of take that approach. But you brought up the word rumination. So again, getting back to root causes, yeah, we can address, keep the junk out of the, you know, the pantry. Let's address the dive. Those things are important. But, but we are just seeing an epidemic uh, in middle school and high school of a lot of um, kids that are just dealing with chronic stress, depression, anxiety. I mean, you know, the, the case of Gun High School, ironically named Gun High School in Palo Alto, with all the suicides that happen in these affluent families, was just really, um, you know, um, just shocking to the entire community and even worldwide. People responded to that. So, um, you know, we really need to think about what are those root causes. And and rumination is a very simple way for me to think about that. Because again, I treat mental health kind of like diabetes. Remember, we talked about don't wait for the sugar to get high, try to identify it as early as possible. For me, rumination is kind of like pre-anxiety or pre-depression, because it is a common thought process. And if you can catch it happening on a regular basis, it is one of the underlying precursors to anxiety or depression. And the simple, beautiful way to sort of think about this is if you tend to ruminate more on past events, that's really more depression. You know, why did this happen? How did I end up here? You know, if you're dwelling a lot in the past and ruminating on those thoughts, your spectrum is probably more towards depression. If you're constantly ruminating on future, you know, what's going to happen when this happens? You know, when I get this job, what's going to happen when my kid's out of the house? Are they going to do okay? That That's normal. Some amount of worry is okay, but rumination is a constant, almost an obsession with those thoughts. And if it's more future stated, the content's more future thinking, that's more anxiety, basically. And we know it's not so black and white. There's a lot of mixtures between depression and anxiety, but often catching at that stage can really help you acknowledge that thought pattern and then think of specific ways to break that behavior. Well, those go together so frequently. So I suppose you could be someone who is either uh, lamenting the past or yeah. stressing about the future alternatively right. back and forth nonstop exactly. and there's no mindfulness, there's no present. That's that's exactly right. And in most of the patients that you see at later stages, most patients don't just have clear black and white depression or anxiety. Often it is a combination of both. So. And this is across the age groups. You mentioned the, the concerns about the teens, but I imagine yeah. you're seeing adult patients doing the same thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then so so then if you take a step back and think, what's driving those ruminating thoughts, right? So that's the bigger question is, what, where is that coming from? And, you know, all of us are going to ruminate to some extent, but often it is as an adult, you know, if we were told from an early age that you didn't achieve this, you didn't do that, you know, you're getting straight A's, you know, that's not enough. That, that carries on later into life. It's a subconscious sort of recording that takes place that I got to do more, you know? So, so I'll, I'll tell you my personal anecdote is like, uh, you know, when I grew up, I sort of went to, into medicine sort of as a default mechanism because my brother was supposed to go into it and he didn't. And I can't say I was a guy that, yeah, I want to go out and save lives, but I was like, I'm good in science. Maybe I'll go into it, you know? And then my dad being a doctor, he was sort of like, yeah, you're doing primary care, but why didn't you think about specializing? He was very gentle about that, but he was like, it'd be great if you specialized. You became a cardiologist. You'll make a lot more money. You'll save a lot more lives. And I wasn't ready, Brad, to go into three or four more years of training. So I kind of ditched that and I was done. And although I had a very positive parenting environment, 
every now and then that seeds in the back of my head. And I think that in some ways it drives me because I'm like, I want to go out and do whatever I can. But sometimes it does cause you to ruminate on, okay, what's next? You know, so it can be very subtle. A lot of us are very positive parents, but we can send very subtle messages or we can behave in a way um, that your kids are modeling themselves after. If you're type A, your kid's probably going to turn out to be type A in some ways. And maybe that'll lead to success in certain areas. But in other areas, if they're not satisfied, they're going to be ruminating on what do I do to make myself better? So, so it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a very fine balance, you know, so we have to be really aware of the messages that we send our kids around these things. I think the type A's in many cases are afraid to let that go for a, a brief moment, even to let that type A calm down and let those voices, they think they'll lose their edge. down. Right. Yeah. 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 What do you think? Yeah. I think that's, that. it's, it's hard to turn that sort of thought process off so, you know, even me, I would say I'm probably, I don't know how you judge me, but I'd say I'm probably borderline type A, but, but, but often what I have to do with my kids is, you know, I have to show them that even in the midst of all this, that I'm able to disconnect and chill out. And I, I sort of, I verbalize that with the family. I'm like, you know, even though I've got these deadlines, we need to get out, walk the dog and do some of this because otherwise, you know, this is not going to be good for us. So, so we're, my, my, my wife and I are constantly verbalizing these things in the course of our daily life. So and doing it, there, it and doing like, it, right, right. And doing it. So they've yeah. got to be able to see that. I mean, I've found that like, there's like a 10 to one effectiveness ratio of my speeches versus my actions and, and yeah. you know, walking my talk and, and things like sure. that. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And that's not to even, not to discount the speeches. Right. Right. Uh, of because uh, you know, my kids, I'm telling them to relax when they attend. They're both in college. Yeah. Enjoy this. Enjoy the learning. Enjoy yeah. the experience. Read yeah. the book. Don't stress about tests. And I'll say that to them over and over. I can't model that. Yeah. So it is important to, to you know, these are, these are values that I harbor that you should have an enjoyable experience studying in college. Right. With zero stress about grades or yeah. where it's going to lead. What are you going to do with that degree? Exactly. Oh, art history. <laughs> so uh, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I'm going to go live my life. And so right. I want to counter all the cultural forces that are saying, um, yeah, what are you going to do with that? Exactly. It's, it's hard. It's built into our DNA so much. But, you know, if, if, if the backside of that is, you know, having somebody that's graduated from a prestigious university that ends up following sort of the dream and they end up depressed, divorced with a chronic health condition as a parent, is that what you want to see? And in my practice, you know, I see a lot of C-level executives I and mean, people that on paper or the front of magazines have hit all the bars they're on their second marriage or a third marriage or, you know, all types of things are happening. And, and you just realize that for them to get to that point, it's just, they had to make a lot of sacrifices. And, and, you know, often later in their life, they're like, I wish I spent more time with my kids. I wish me, I wish I made more basketball games and things like that. Things that they sacrificed to, you know, build maybe a better life in some ways, but now they're reflecting back and having those regrets. So I think we just have to think about the consequences of those actions. Jack Welch, yeah. my favorite example, is, is a line from his book. Yeah. And he was talking about how, you know, the culture of, of working at, uh, at GE and everyone came in on Saturday because he went in on Saturday right. and he now he has regrets and wonders. And this sentence started, for instance, comma, my children. <laughs> and mm. so like his children were for instance, uh, not my children oh, suffered and I didn't get to know them. But he said, yeah. for example, my yard, you know, over came overgrown with weeds. Uh, for oh for instance, I didn't exercise much. Yeah. For instance, my kids, like, yeah, their names the same are category. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. That's yeah. tough. That's yeah. tough. So if we're listening uh, out, shout out to the other parents, get to those basketball games, right? Totally. Yeah. Or, or whatever, whatever's <laughs> going on, even if it's um, time in the backyard drawing, I, I like to do clay sculptures with my daughter. It's great. Nice. We're not getting, yeah. we're not selling any. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You're not trying to build a startup like they are here with the family. That's the, the that's a family event here is try to build a startup early on and put it on your college application. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, what do you think? You, your kids are going to be in those college ages pretty soon and the, the competitiveness of the application process and all that. I think the whole application, I, I wish somebody could intervene and just stop the madness with, with the whole college application process. Cause I think it creates so much tension for the entire family. It doesn't send the right signals. I don't have a solution for that, but I wish somebody really smart in the innovation world could really help redefine the whole college application process. But we've decided to go in and we, first of all, have not set any goals for schools, for career. It's exactly what you talked about. It's just how do we get them to enjoy school as much as possible? I got to say, when I, when I went through school in high school, I don't really think of it as an enjoyable process. It was just a process, basically. But teaching them how to really pick classes that they like, you know, how to learn how to learn, you know, how to like create diagrams, take notes in ways that's more interactive discussions. Today, you know, the, the plus side of technology is, man, it's really cool to learn U.S. History Weekend when you can watch a short YouTube video about the American Revolution or something like that. So I think there's an opportunity to just make school and education a lot more um, meaningful and memorable. But yeah, the, uh, I got to tell you, I don't have any solutions on the college application process right now because it's a nightmare. I just thought of one. Tell me. It could just be complete lottery. Yeah. So it, it, as long as you pass all your classes right. and get a 3.0, <laughs> you apply to Stanford yeah. and you get in just like you get into, um, you know, the, the, the Boston Marathon that's overflowed there or whatever. Go. Nice. Yeah. Just a lottery. Yeah, and then <laughs> right. and you show up freshman, freshman on campus. Who are these guys? I don't know. I just got in. <laughs> yeah. Right. It wasn't, that it wasn't great? like the elite maximum, totally. maximum equal opportunity. Out. Yeah. I love it. How fun. <laughs> Dr. Ron, I, I feel like we have five more shows teed up oh, from man. all the little uh, <laughs> tangents or, or topics we hit, but it was it was fun. really fast moving. Yeah. yeah, maybe I'll inspire you to start your own podcast or at least come back on <laughs> as we try to uh, oh, get yeah. over ourselves. That's yeah. kind of the, the, the theme here. And the reason I titled that is like, it seems like a solution to some of these things like ruminating yeah. and placing too much importance on the day-to-day outcome of what you're doing rather than focusing and enjoying the process. Absolutely. And I got to give hats off to you because I think, again, coming back to sort of the whole lifestyle, low-carb ketogenic movement, what I've seen is for some people, it's kind of led to some situations where they're putting even more pressure on themselves, right? In terms of body con, you probably see this as well. What are you talking about? I don't understand. (laughs) Right. So often it can take a type A and turn them into a type A in every part of their life. Type AAA. Type AAA. Um, but I think your show and a lot of the work you and Mark have done has really tried to put more life balance into this movement. And I think more of the health leaders out there need to really follow suit because I've definitely seen some people develop a lot of frustrations and mental health and anxiety because they're not hitting those targets. So Are they coming to see you and they're they're in good metabolic health, but they're <laughs> feeling frustrated? I yeah, mean, are those I mean, people... Well, initially when I wasn't as mindful of the impact of what, what it would have... They would come back to me maybe a lot, uh, you know, maybe a year out instead of six months and say, I was kind of afraid to see you because I kind of fell off the wagon and I felt like you'd be disappointed in my triglycerides and this and that. So, so after I saw enough of those patients, I'm like, I've got to be much more sort of gentle with the framing of sort of what are our goals here, right? Is it really to develop a six pack or is it really to make some small changes so you feel more energetic so you six feel pack. better about yourself, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Sorry, yeah. Uh, right. wrong answer. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh. both, all of the above, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, so I think, um, you know, really kind of setting those expectations, you know, that's something else we talk about in rumination too is what are your expectations for everything you try to accomplish? And maybe we need to be more realistic with what we're setting. So you're getting into it with a patient on, oh, on this yeah. level? Because I thought you only had seven minutes now with the average patient interaction. I know. 
So well, is this, uh, you, you're giving a lot of talks. What does your day look like in your role there with the large so employer I, groups? I do have an unfair advantage because I don't necessarily, I don't have a concierge practice, but it's a, it's a consult practice. So I get 60 minutes with every new patient. So I do have that advantage of being able to talk through a lot of these situations. So they get the diagram, they get the, you know, the talk on metabolic health, they understand the science. And then it's not always the first visit. Maybe I'll, I'll drop in a couple of pearls around stress and goal lowering, but it might be a follow-up, you know, visit in three months where we start talking a little bit more about emotional health and balance and things too. So it's got to be layered. That sounds like a nice perk if I'm working at uh, Google, Facebook, Oracle, whoever you're taking care of. That's pretty sure. awesome. 60 yeah. minutes with Dr. Ron. You want to <laughs> sh- give a shout out to some employers. I mean, then, then we can like, you know, use this as a recruiting podcast. All of the above, man. Everything you That's men- who you mentioned. work for? Uh, you work I mean, for those guys? One of many. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So with each of these companies, um, it's a different type of service. It might be lectures. It might be our mobile onsite clinic, which goes out there. It's an RV where we get primary care doctors out to busy employees. So yeah, you, you, you name an employer, we're probably working with them in some way. Is there any big place that's doing a fabulous job going above and beyond to look after their employees' health and balance living? I think, I mean, I think that there are a lot of companies now that are evolving in that direction. So, so for example, I think Google does great work in this area because they really have created a culture and an environment that really helps facilitate healthy changes. I think in any environment, you know, a lot of times I think the problem in Silicon Valley is people like to blame the company for everything. Um, but often, you know, the employees can really, you know, take control of their lives and do a lot because many companies that are even trying their best, it always comes back to the employee who's addicted to work or they just want to keep driving. And sometimes they might turn to the company as being, okay, this is the place that's really driving these changes. But often it does come back to our own roots. So, Ooh, yeah. that reminds me of my podcast with Isaac Rochelle, the NFL defensive end for the LA Chargers. Mm. And we're talking about how you know, these organizations don't really treat the players like the, the multi-million dollar economic assets that they, they are. They're, yeah. they're, they're, you know, the physical athlete is put back onto the field too soon and yeah. you know, they're not looking after them with long-term interest. They want to get them back and play and, and inject them with whatever painkiller. Yeah. And that was acknowledged. And he also mm. said, man, the athlete's got to take, take responsibility here too. You're a professional athlete. What you put into your body is of utmost importance. So I yeah. think the, the knowledge worker, the same, when you're working yeah. too many hours, these guys are smart. Go look at the research and what happens to your cognitive performance when you've right. gone past that time. Yep. And now, I don't know, what, what, are, you, what, no, are, you, what are you doing out there still? Exactly. Yeah. No, you're right. So where can we find these fabulous blog articles and, and see what see what you're up to? We know about the book South Asian Health Solution. Yeah. I mean, it's got a long URL, but um, my, I blog at culturalhealthsolutions.com. And so that's where you can find a lot of information about wellness programs and lectures and any events that are coming out locally or, or globally as well, too. Sassy tweets, too, right? Sassy tweets, but yeah. probably not as often as they should be. Didn't yeah, you so. say 11 million people are taking the wrong medication? That was one of your tweets, I think. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Right. I was like, <laughs> okay, that's a lot of people and that's a lot of wrong medications going out. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. All right. Yeah. Dr. Ron Sinha, thank you so much. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. I'm going to get you back. I'm going to track you down. We're going to get you back. Hey, you, you, you know where to find me. Thank you, listeners. Thank you for listening to the show. We would love your feedback at getoveryourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And we would also love if you could leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a hassle. You have to go to desktop iTunes, click on the tab that says ratings and reviews, and then click to rate the show anywhere from five to five stars.
And it really helps spread the word so more people can find the show and get over themselves because they need to. Thanks for doing it. Let's talk about ancestral supplements. If you're into ancestral health, primal paleo, keto, you know the importance of consuming these unique agents contained in bone marrow, in the nose-to-tail organ meats, liver, kidney, all that stuff, the great bone broth benefits. Well, how's it going? For me, since years ago when Dr. Kate Shanahan asserted the importance of these wonderful nutritional benefits that you can't get elsewhere, eh, not too good. I don't know how to cook a liver or a kidney, but now your problems are solved forever when you go to ancestralsupplements.com, a wonderful company filled with people who are living the dream, walking their talk, and bottling up the purest, cleanest sources of grass-fed organ meats, kidney, liver, bone marrow, all in these wonderful capsules. I dump them in my smoothie every day. I'm healthy. I don't have to worry. It's an incredible dietary boost. And this is so different from swallowing a bunch of those synthetic vitamins and those giant bottles from the big box stores, highly questionable health practice. This stuff is the real deal. Grass-fed organ meats, pure as can be, ancestralsupplements.com. 